to Cover to Cover, a podcast featuring musical conversations about an album or song which has changed and enhanced someone's life. I am your host, songwriter Matt Tarka. Thanks for joining us. We humans connect with the presence of music in our own unique way. As an artist, a concert goer, through our headphones, or as something that simply lives in our everyday background. Our guest today hails from Alexandria, Virginia. He is one Jarrett Nicolay. Jarrett is a member of my new mixtape, which is a solo project of his. He is the bassist of Virginia Coalition. He also makes up one half of a band known as Astrovia, and he's also a member of a project known as Franklin Gotham. Jarrett is also the owner and producer at Mixtape Studios. In terms of what Jarrett is currently working on creatively or what's inspiring him at the moment, well, he is working on a couple of records that are set to be released, I would imagine pretty soon, by uh, Justin Trawick and Olivia Mancini. In terms of any favorite sports or activities, Jarrett loves all things Wii Sports. In terms of any favorite TV shows to watch or stream, Jarrett really enjoys Star Trek, The Next Generation, as well as The Clone Wars. Does our guest have any pet peeves? Well, in one word, half-assery. Any favorite foods? Lamb vindaloo and tacos. Shitty beef tacos, not that fancy business. For our conversation today, we're going to be discussing an important English rock band known as the Smiths and a compilation titled Louder Than Bombs. Louder Than Bombs was released as a double album in March of 1987 and features a wonderful breadbasket of singles, B-sides, and John Peel sessions. So without further ado, let's welcome Jarrett to the program. Jarrett Nicolay of My New Mixtape, Virginia Coalition, Astrovia, and Franklin Gotham. Thanks for spending some time with us here on Cover to Cover. Really appreciate you coming on the program. My pleasure, man. We are going to be talking about The Smiths and one gigantic compilation called Louder Than Bombs. Um, Jared, what inspired you to choose this <laughs> this offering from the Smiths? There are a lot of singles, some John Peel sessions. Um, how did this come about? How did you discover the band? Um, where did it begin for you? Well, I mean, to I guess answer the first question, I, I wanted, I chose this record and um, I realized that it isn't an, uh, an official Smiths album. So, you know, I'm I kind of view it as, as a way to let us talk about multiple um, eras of the Smiths um, discography kind of uh, under the guise that it's an album and, you know, knowing full well that it's I'm kind of cheating, uh, you know, with your format, but I hope that's okay. That's fine. <laughs> um, so my um, introduction to the Smiths was, I think I was in eighth grade and I was in art class and my teacher, um, Patty Lewis, she um, was an awesome art teacher, and a lot of it was just kind of, you know, us drawing and, and, you know, the room, you know, no talking, really great, you know, kind of artistic atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And she had this box of cassettes that we could choose to play. Um, You know, each person got like a day to to pick what music we could listen to in class. And and the Smiths, The Queen is Dead, was one of the tapes in the offering. Um, And that was how I first heard them. So that was, a, you know, a record I think that came out, I think it was their second to last record. So I think it came out in 86, 1986. So mm-hmm. I don't think there's any songs from The Queen of Dead on Louder Than Bombs. But that was my first introduction to the band. 
And it just sounded like music from um, somewhere so different than my experiences as of, you know, up to that point, you know, yeah. as like an American teenager, um, you know, in, in the 80s. And it just sounded like it just transported me instantly to what I imagined, you know, England and then later to realize that they're from like Manchester and it just sounded rainy and cold and, and, and like Mars to me, you know, and uh, it was really, and, and down to like the, you know, Morrissey singing style, um, which I understand it's not your thing. Um, but again, it was just, it was so different and his lyrics being so English. And so um, he does a lot with a little, um, he's very, he distills larger concepts to me that are even almost nonverbal with turns of phrases. And, and at the same time, it's very hooky and poppy. And then, you know, then there's Johnny Marr to talk about. We can talk about that later. But um, so to me, it was just this this kind of like exotic, um, you know, very foreign sounding, but also accessible um, on some level. Like they're, they're steeped in classic pop and, and rockabilly, you know, kind of, there's there's all this in jazz and like there's all this stuff in there that's traditional, but when they do when the four of them play together, it really turns into something that that while it has the ingredients of tradition, it really turns into something different. I think, and that's what attracted me to it, at, you know, at, at first and still today. We are talking with Jarrett Nicolay here on Cover to Cover with Matt Tarka, specifically about the Smiths compilation uh record called louder than bombs it it feels very apropos that we're talking about the smiths given the fact that right now we're both on the east coast and it is dark it is gloomy <laughs> really depressing outside our our universe is going through some extremely weird and um oh gosh uh just unpredictable times um what are you talking about man i don't know what you're talking about yeah I, yeah yeah <laughs> I guess I'm just living on my own private Idaho right now. I have yeah, no, right. no yeah. clue. Um, can you tell our listeners who makes up the Smiths? You started to speak about uh, Johnny Marr after Morrissey, but who's for our listeners who just for whatever reason are um, unfamiliar with the group, who um, who's in the band? Sure, man. Um, so yeah, Morrissey is the singer. Um, I think Stephen Morrissey is his actual name. Um, but, you know, he's known as Morrissey to most people. And despite having gone off the deep end and turning into like an alt-right kind of freakazoid in his elder, you know, years, <laughs> you know, up, until, up until that point, he's, he's you know, from, I think he's a good example of, of separating the art from the artist. Um, I think a lot of times you run into the, the problem of not being able to enjoy somebody's work because of their politics or their, just their, you know, opinions about things, you know, like Woody Allen or, you know, the yeah. kind of people that, that, you know, and I, I've struggled with that. But I do want to, especially now, nowadays, I want to still be able to enjoy stuff. And yeah. I, I don't I don't think that's being disrespectful to the, you know, the greater concepts of what's right and wrong. But, um, you know, I even though Morrissey seems to be kind of not really on the same ideological agenda that I am currently, I still can enjoy his music from, you know, this era. Um, but anyway, I digress. Um, so, yes, yeah, so then he's the yeah. singer um, yeah. and lyricist. Johnny Marr is the guitar player, and he writes the the music. So it's, I think, to put it, you know, in blunt terms, Morrissey was the lyric writer, and, more, and Johnny Marr was the music writer and guitar player. Um, and then the rhythm section, who are excellent in my opinion, 
is um, Andy Rourke on bass. He's a phenomenal bass player. Um, and then Mike Joyce on drums. So we have a quartet. And those, like, in the 80s, like, that was, like, you know, it's still a thing, um, but, you know, that there was, like, the, the, the bands that had, like, that lineup where it was, like, R.E.M., U2, and, you know, all these bands that would have, like, mm-hmm. a singer. That, you know, later, that, like, U2, like, Bondo would start playing guitar and stuff, but, I mean, more yeah. if you played some piano in the studio, but it was, by and large, you know, the singer was the singer. That was his instrument, and then it was a guitar player, um, and then a rhythm section, at least mm-hmm. live. And then for a bit, they did have an auxiliary guitar player. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Can you, yeah, you, you know, you, you talked about experiencing this miss for the first time. Um, how did you discover this particular compilation? Was it after discovering or? Yeah. How did that, how did um, that work? Did you hear about some deleted singles that the band had produced and said, oh, holy cow, like they're now readily available on this gigantic compilation. How did that happen? I would like to say it was because of some artistic, you know, higher calling or something like that, but really it came down to, to finances. <laughs> the <laughs> Loud and Bomb was the same. The CD for Loud and Bombs was the same price as any of their other records at the record store I would go to. Uh-huh. So it was it was a simple math equation for me. You know, I was like 24 songs or whatever it is, for, you know, for $9.99. That's like, that, that seems like a better deal than, than 10 songs. Absolutely. And, uh, and at that point, I didn't know it was a compilation. So I bought it. It was the second piece of music I'd heard from them after the, you know, the, the art room experience. And um, and just, it, to me, at first I thought it was an album. And I didn't know much about production back then. I'm both doing, you know, I was starting to record music in, in junior high school. Um, so I, I had a, you know, probably more than an average person's knowledge of, of production, but, but very little of any, like, you know, real kind of technical prowess or anything like that. So, but I could tell that, that the, the songs sounded like they were from different times or different studios. So, like, at some point I did realize that something was a little strange about this record. And it kind of has this, I'm not going to compare it um, content-wise to the, the White Album, but it has a White Album vibe to me because it's it does seem like a bunch of different kind of, at least different versions of the same band doing drastically different styles of music on one offering. You know, usually a question I like to ask, you know, where this fits into the overall discography. And uh, was this compilation put together after the band had um, had broken up? Or was this, you know, you know what I'm trying to say? Is, uh, yeah, the, no, I think the, it's... Yeah, yeah. The, um, I think it, it was definitely before they broke up. It was, I think it was the American version. So there was a an English version of, of the compilation as well. Um, I think it was, um, I might be wrong, but I think it's The World Won't Listen, um, or maybe it was Half Alive. It's, what's interesting about Smith that also was, um, that I enjoyed in real time back then was, it was the mystery of like, where are, where is the song coming from? Like, cause you know, when you have albums, it's, it's, it's like a complete thought and there's liner notes that are, you know, it's con- it's cohesive and consistent, but with the Smiths, their ca- their whole catalog is kind of a mess. Like the way they were treated um, with the releases in America, um, they were not the same as the British releases. So the ones we were before, there was like streaming and stuff like that. There were definitely different versions. So basically, the albums in the in the states 
for the Smiths were, were different than the English records. Um, and, and sometimes there weren't even equivalent records. So, like, I think that Louder Than Bombs is a, is a mix of Hat Full of Hollows and The World Won't Listen. And they just kind of uh, stuck it all in one to kind of, for convenience sake, for, for the American market. And then I think they did they then did reissue the Louder Than Bombs in England because the English fans were upset that you could get all these songs together. And um, there was a few songs that I think maybe weren't on the other two records. I could be wrong about the details of that, but... That's the gist of it. But to yeah. me, it, did, it definitely played into the, the, the kind of mystery of, like, who are these guys? You know, why do these songs all sound so different? But it's clearly the same singer. Um, and it just it impressed me that, that the the range of, of, what, of what they were offering musically. Absolutely. This feels like a good time to talk about, you know, what, what is on this record and, you know, various you know, genres that the band was uh, was working with at any given point in time, whether they be focusing on, you know, kind of rockabilly or, or jazz. Would you like to go through all of these songs track by track, or would you like to, you know, pick out some of your absolute favorites um, that were recorded during the era of the band, which I believe was about 82 to 87? Is that, is that close? That's, I think that's right. I think, I mean, I had them... I was trying to think about this today, like because it's yeah. impressive that they did so much in so little time. I think they were a band for five or six years, so that that makes sense. Incredible, sure. and they, yeah, and they've had so many opportunities to uh, to get together in one way or another, whether it be a large festival or <clears throat> for a cause. And they've, you know, at least Morrissey and, and uh, Johnny Marr are on records, you know, turning down every opportunity, which is really sad. <laughs> So it's so I, that's something I, I would actually like to talk about as well. Um, yeah. I, for some reason, enjoy bands that hardline like that they're like we are done. Like the, like again like the Beatles. Like yeah. I was like like kind of like the Beatles and the Stones. Like the Beatles had their like eight years where they made you know they recorded music or whatever it was, and and that is the Beatles. But like and it didn't you know it doesn't get dicey like it does with like the Stones discography where it's like there's some like late '80s records where you're like oh my god like you know maybe it would have been better if you hadn't made that record kind of a thing. You right. Know, like, when Let yeah. It Be is your worst record, that's a pretty good problem to have. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's a smash hit for so many other artists, but they just kind right. of, yeah, absolutely. So I kind of put the Smiths in yeah. that same category where it's like, you know, um, and again, to like draw a comparison to like a contemporary of theirs, like R.E.M., you know, the drummer mm-hmm. left, they they still try to, you know, and I, I applaud their, you know, their drive to keep making music, but there's something about just the this is not the Smiths anymore because you know it's it's over you know that's there's something really um, attractive to me about that and the discipline artistically to to make that decision you know there's so much money to be made if, if you just get back together why don't we, why don't we talk about some of your favorite tracks um would you like to start with any tracks that might have been part of a a John Peel session or any I do like the John Peel stuff that um yeah I like how the the album start like to me I feel like this album kind of comes in chapters um or you know this compilation comes in uh chapters like the first I guess three songs were like almost kind of arena rocking like you know they're just big rock sounding you know they they don't sound like when if you someone is like thinks of the Smiths I don't think they would associate the first three songs with like a you know a typical Smith's offering, which is why I think they're pretty cool. There's like guitar solos and, you know, it's just distortion and, and they're just kind of like, they just have like a lot of swagger. You know, it's not the first three songs on the, you know, is it really so strange? Um, 
you yeah. think about, and I mean, shoplifters of the world unite is like I think the the kind of culmination of that version of the Smiths. Like that's a, you know, and that was an, that was a single, so that makes sense. But but that song is just like like that's the one I would say if you if you if you haven't listened to the Smiths and you want to hear like them at their best of that you know rocking kind of like over the top you know kind of straight ahead rock stuff. I would listen to Shoplifters for sure. Shoplifters has this lyric that really stood out for me, and, and it goes like this. Tried living in the real world instead of a shell, but before I began, I was bored before I even began. Yeah. I mean, that's that's pretty much Morrissey in a nutshell. Like, yeah. he, has, he just has these, you know, that says so much to me, and it speaks to, like, I think more, you know, as much or more than it did then, like, to, to kind of right now, you know, it just has this kind of, like, you know, just kind of over itness that, but still super cool sounding, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And just even thinking about the title of that song, Shoplifters of the World, I wonder if this was uh, some sort of a, an outcry of maybe what was happening in the government of the UK at that point in time. I, I believe this was right along the time when... Um, Thatcher? Uh, Thatcher, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, he's, he's definitely, and Morrissey is no fan of the monarchy. Um, which I also think is hilarious. And, you know, that's, or at least he wasn't there. I don't know if he is now, but who knows what, what he is now. But um, I, I just like that, the irreverence of, you know, of, and, and I think like bands like The Cure were also kind of like that. And I think that was, you know, also what was attractive to, to, to me about, you know, that, that era of music. Just to, you know, it, yeah. you know, it's like a, it's a call to arms kind of, you know, it's like a, yeah. it's such a, a strange, you know, it's not an obvious, um, rebellion song, but it really is, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's r- right here, I mean, you could apply this in contemporary culture today. Now, today, tomorrow, and always, my only weakness is a listed crime, but last night the plans of a future war was all I saw on Channel 4. Yeah. Yeah, all over BBC is what was happening in, in the world at that point in time. Yeah, and, and then he just thinks about it with this detached kind of like, you know, coolness. It makes it even more chilling. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. After Shoplifters of the World, we have another John Peel session from, I think, December 2nd of 86 uh, called Sweet and Tender Hooligan. And when I listened to this track for the first time, um, I could really hear the influence of bands like The Libertines. Sure. Yeah, just particularly in just lyrical spacing and just general vocal stylings. Yeah, I mean it's definitely another another rocker, you know. It's, it's got it's got. Uh, I think that's. Um, I'm thinking that's 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 actually the one one of the ones I know less well. That's got the guitarist that starts it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it does. Yeah. Yeah, that's like a great giant R guitarist for sure. Yeah. Um. So that's I guess. So that would be like the first four songs on the record. They're definitely all you know, kind of an assault on your senses. Um, and then you get to track five, which is um, one of my favorites on the record, Half a Person. Uh-huh. And, and that's, um, that was, I think it was a single, I think it was a B-side single. Um, I'm not sure what it was, what, what it was the B-side to, but um, that was the first song on the record that I heard. To Shoplifters. It was a B-side to Shoplifters. Was it? Okay. So that yeah. Makes they sound, yeah. they have a similar sheen to them. Um, but, other than that, there's not really like the the tone of each song couldn't be more different. Like the 
there, it gets into more like the kind of jazziness, the chords are like there's some major seven chords and half a person. It's a way more mid-tempo. But the lyrics, I remember that was the, because when I first heard this record, the, the more rocking stuff, I was kind of put off by it because I thought it sounded like too American or, you know, it just didn't, it wasn't like I was, to, to my to my own ears, I was expecting more of a mysterious, you know, based on the Queen is Dead record that I had heard. Um, so yeah. it took, the, the first like three or four songs on this record, I probably started liking after I liked, you know, went through discussing on all of the other songs. So it was interesting for me. But to, to have gotten to track five is a testament to the fact that people used to have attention spans. <laughs> I got to, so when I got to track five, I was like, okay, this is what I was more like what I was expecting. And then the lyrics, you know, when he, he's singing about the, the YW, he's just like checking into the YWCA instead of the YMCA. Yeah. And, and that was like my first indication that something was a little, a little different in, you know, in his writing and, 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 and it kind of like tipped me off to like start searching for more little weird, you know, quirky kind of lyrical um, offerings. But so half a person, I would say, would be the first song on this record that I was like, listen to it like five times in a row and learn how to play it on the guitar. And the funniest part was that I, John, so I, Johnny Marr is a huge user of capos. And, and like, so that's and for like non-musician listeners, the capo is, is something you can use on the guitar to change key of, of the chords you're playing. Like if you play like an E chord, you put a capo, it, depending on where you put the capo on the neck, it can make it any, you know, a G chord or whatever. So this, I believe this half a person was capo second fret on the guitar, but I learned it without a capo. And I was just like, why is it so hard? You know, like this is so strange. And then like later <laughs> when I realized that he used a lot of capos, then, so it was kind of, it was kind of a fun little boot camp for me because I was like, well, it must be doable without, you know, because he's playing it. And then to, to realize later that he actually was using the capo was kind of humbling <laughs> yeah. at that point. Yeah. We're, we're talking with Jarrett Nicolay here on Cover to Cover with Matt Tarka, talking about Half a Person, which is the B-side to a song called Shoplifters from the Smiths, 1987. Compilations called Louder Than Bombs. And, uh, after half person, we have a track uh, called London. Um, what strikes you about this song, Jared? Is it is it one of your favorites, or is it? Um, um, I think uh, transitions it, to other other tracks that you enjoy. Um, I don't was London a single? I can't remember. It seems like I know Panic. The next song was a single. I I would say um, London is not one of my favorite songs. Um, let me refresh my ears on this. Because there are so many songs. Hang on one second. Because it always confuses me because Panic, the lyric in Panic is Panic on the Streets of London, uh, which is the next song on the, on the record. So, like, to me, I have this, like, hardwired confusion between Panic and London. <laughs> yeah. Hey, we, we could talk about Panic. Um, I, I, I like the chorus of children singing Hang the DJ in that song. It kind of it seems like a nod to Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall. A vast, oh, you mean on, vast, on Panic? A vastly different band, but nevertheless, yeah. it's, uh, it's, a nice, uh, it's a nice studio, um, nice just studio section of that song. Yeah, no, the, the, the Hang the DJ line, and that's, I think, you know, um, the mantra kind of quality of that is is, is pretty great. Um really just and again that just the irreverence of like you know 
just and with you know having the children do it is, is again just makes it extra kind of creepy and it does you're right though i never thought about the pink floyd connection but you know they're just, both these bands are very very british <laughs> yeah it's kind of kind of sinister in its own way definitely <laughs> definitely creepy for sure yeah little children are always creepy yeah, yes yes as you will soon find out it, uh, yeah <laughs> after um <laughs> after panic we have uh, a song called Girl Afraid. A little bit of um, kind of a surf rock vibe in there. What do you, I mean, it's very dark, very eerie. Um, yep. But some, some of that, yeah, go ahead. No, you can finish your thought for sure. Oh, no. Um, I, I was just thinking maybe there's just a little bit of a tango influence there with some kind of jangly guitar types of soundscapes. It's a really interesting tune. And I think that that's where you get into, like, this is, like, a definite another uh, different section of the record as like a you know a chapter in a book kind of a thing because I feel like that and Shakespeare's sister they're not you know they're not the same kind of vibe but they're they're both equally not mainstream sounding to me and like Shakespeare's sister the next song was a single I think because um, the Smiths they definitely like um, they thought of themselves as a single band like as like putting out like 45s and, and solo pieces of music not as an album band which I find interesting because, like, I don't think they had many, if any, number one singles. I think they're, you know, they were always kind of a little bit, a little too off, you know, the mainstream. They weren't as accessible as some bands, you know, at the time, you know, especially in England. Um, so they, even though they thought of themselves as a singles band, I don't think they had any number one hits. Um, they, you know, they might have one um, with, uh, with the Eye on the Sun and the Moon, what's that song? John wow. Blank. Um, it was like a it was like a, a Chevy commercial in in the states, like in the eighties. They, they made probably the most money they ever made on that one song. Um, it's embarrassing. I can't think of the name of it. It's like uh, uh, here. I'll think about it. I think about it. I'll reference it later. But basically, yeah. that might be their only number one single. Um, yeah. And, you know, considering that they thought they were a singles band, either they were completely oblivious to their own, what they were doing, or they just, you know, were just like the concept of the standalone. You know, they were very big in the early days, especially on, like, not being associated with, like, the bloated kind of, like, arena, like, 70s rock, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. long jam, like, jam sections and, like, you know, extensive solos and just, just rock and roll kind of cliche. Like, they 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 wanted to, to kind of go back to a, I think they had more of a 60s kind of mentality, you know, um, distilled through the 80s aesthetic. It's interesting that you you mentioned their, you know, their 60s influence because um, just going back to Girl Afraid for a second, there's a a lyric in there that reminded me of um, uh, a 1964 single from the Beatles, I Feel Fine. There's There's a line in the song where he sings, but she doesn't even like me and I know because she said so. Oh, wow, yeah. I'm so glad that she's my little girl. You know that you know that's that part of the Beatles tune, but I that just really kind of struck me for whatever reason. There's I, I don't know maybe that was a you know is an unintentional <laughs> yeah uh, could reference be. there, yeah. but it's, yeah 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 it definitely could be a nod. I I've never even picked up on that. That's good ears, man. Um, but I mean, there's no way they didn't listen to the Beatles. I mean, like Johnny Marr, you know, his guitar um, preferences in the early days. I think he played Rickenbackers a lot and stuff like that, and he then I think he went. Um, he started playing. Uh, I think he plays a Fender Mustang or maybe a Jaguar. I don't, he has like a signature series guitar. And again, this is where my non-obsessiveness is failing me because 
I'm sure some, you know, some people would know exactly what model of guitar he plays, but he does, the, the, I think the later stuff he was on, uh, more like single coil, like Fender, you know, surfier guitars for sure. For sure, yeah. You know, and, he, and his use of the tremolo, um, like the whammy bar stuff that he does is so tasteful. Cause again, that can, that can go so wrong so fast when you start getting the, the whammy bar out. <laughs> right. It, it can, yeah. it, you know, unless you're good at that, it gets, it's, it's a fun, it's like walking a tightrope or something. But Yeah. There's some more 60s-isms in, uh, in Shakespeare's sister. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm reminded of uh, kind of like 65 Dylan, like Tombstone Blues, or it's all yeah. like, I'm only bleeding. Like some more just kind of like subtle lyrical things. I mean, like, no mama, let me go. And then, you know, the last full stanza, you know, he's he's singing, I thought that if you had an acoustic guitar, then it meant you were a protest singer. Oh, I can smile about it now, but at the time it was terrible. No, Mama, let me go. Um, it seems like he's he's just sort of you know initially kind of like mocking the idea of you know that sort of kind of stripped down approach to music, but then later on he kind of sees some of the merits in it because he's sort of you know taking that call to arms approach with many of his lyrics. No, for sure. I, I think, and I think there is definitely like inner conflict because like this record reveals they clearly like the first four songs on the record the rocking songs are yeah. are kind of very much at odds with what they were kind of like revolting against in their earlier years you know like in their and when they were when they had more kind of a narrower you know artistic um aesthetic and what they allow themselves to do like there are there are straight up guitar solos on i mean like the shoplifters of the world guitar solo it's like an air guitar solo like you could you can't not play air guitar when it happens and to me that's just so it's kind of you know it is so them to break their own rules like that which is part of why i like it we are talking with jared Nicolay right now on cover to cover with matt targa jared is in virginia coalition astrovia he has his own project called my new mixtape and jared is also involved with a project called franklin gotham uh Jared, what do you think about William? It was really nothing, or you you just haven't earned it yet, baby. Which is the track that follows this in, a, in an array of singles. Yeah, I mean, it's, this is like the middle, like the lunch meat portion of this record. Like the, this is the, we're getting into like the baloney part right now. Yeah, um, <laughs> the very middle of the sandwich. Um, so those singles are great. I think that it's definitely a sweet spot for them where it's so, um, I think they're all really short too. I think nothing, really nothing. Um, it's like two minutes long, which to me, again, that kind of goes to their like, you know, uh, non excessive rock and roll kind of cliche, you know, it's, it's very distilled and very, everything that's there needs to be there and it's catchy. And, but again, it's not like, it isn't an obvious pop song, but, it is the pop song nonetheless. And in, in like the, the rhythm section tightness and the acoustic, you know, there's with Johnny Marr, there's so, you know, there's the multi-layered textured electric, you know, songs with all the, you know, the different picking arpeggiated patterns and the tremolo stuff. And then there's the beautiful, strummy acoustic, you know, kind of major 70 kind of songs where it spawned like so many copycat bands, you know, like the Sundays or like, you know, all these bands that, that I think, and in, in, in retrospect, I think what the the stuff at the beginning of the album, like the, the more rocking stuff, was a way to get 
away from sounding like a parody of themselves because I think so many bands kind of kind of got on to that, you know, kind of strummy acoustic Smith sound that it became just bigger than them at that point. And but they but their instinct I think was to not be a part of anything bigger than them. So like it was kind of ironic that they almost spawned what was bigger than them, you know, and, and forced their hand to have to go in a different direction, which was, you know, must have been difficult. They could be making that up. It could it could be my that could be that's how I obsess on things. It's like hypotheticals, not yeah, necessarily yeah. like what what guitar he was using, but like the the bigger kind of like movements that were happening and stuff like that. It's it's pretty fascinating. There's a song on their last official record, "Strange Ways Here We Come," which is a fantastic record as well. I think they, a lot of people think it's kind of um, that the writing was on the wall. That you know you could tell that they were they were kind of done. I don't, you know, at that point, it is their last record, and they weren't getting along at that point. But again, like, the, you know, the end of the Beatles, like, during Abbey Road, it's like, I think yeah. Strange Ways is that kind of, like, let's just make one last, let's just kind of try to forget our differences and, and make a, a good record, and then, you know, we'll see what happens. Maybe I'm wrong, but it, there's something about that record that, that it might be my second or third favorite of the actual, like, traditional, you know, official re- releases. Um, but anyway... There's a song on that record called yeah. Paint a Vulgar Picture that they reference, um, which is a, a great song in itself. It's probably my favorite song on that, on Strange Ways. And it's a song about the music. It's like very meta. The, the lyrics are about they're kind of like, it's veiled a little bit. You know, it's, it's not obvious, you know, upon first listen, but it's more as he's thinking about his and their experience in the music business and, and all of the things that like, because, like, arguably they should have been a bigger band than they were. And they're more of, like, a band's band than, like, a you know, the people's yeah. band. Um, but within the lyrics of, of Paint a Vulgar Picture, he references You Just Haven't Earned It Yet, Baby, in regards to recouping on their on their record sales. So it's kind of this full circle, you know, like, yeah. kind of, like, conversation with the label and, you know, the business side of things, which is kind of interesting. That is interesting. Yeah, I could definitely see that in the lyrics now. It's very... Uh... That is really cool. You should, if you haven't heard Paint a Vulgar Picture, like give that a listen. That would be like, um, if you were going to listen to one one song off the Strange Ways record, that would be where I would start. I certainly will now, for sure. Um, after this track, we have you know a bit of a turn towards some jazz, and it's called Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now. And yep. uh, the opening little bit, you know, it's, it's sung in first person, being happy in the haze of a drunken hour, and um, but heaven knows that that he's miserable now. He's looking for a job. Heaven knows he's miserable. Um, and, and and one thing that kind of struck me here was in my life, why do I give valuable time to people who don't care if I live or die? And how many people have been in a dead end job where they they yeah. felt those exact same feelings? Well, I like that he's miserable when he doesn't have a job, and he's miserable when he has a job. Like that's kind of more yeah. in a nutshell. It's like. It's like yeah. there's no, you know, it's, it's existence is pain, right? <laughs> it's like maybe it's just inner Buddha, Buddha speaking right now. But, but yeah, that's 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 you know, there's. I wouldn't say Morrissey's a diverse lyricist, but I think he's consistent in his in re, um, you know, how he he's a consistent thematic, you know, lyricist. But and I think he he finds funny. And, and 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 the funny is actually the important thing to me. Like the humor, if if you don't understand the humor in it, I can understand why it would just seem like heavy, like mopey, rainy British music. But like it's just it's it's the 
that it's the through line of the humor under all of that is just what I love about it. Yeah, it's a it's a really catchy, cool song. Um, after Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now, we have a song simply titled Ask. And there's this, like, really kind of cool dynamic uh, accordion, I believe, that you can hear in the rhythm section. And there was a fun video that I remember that was produced for it. It's a bunch of you know, kind of young folks dancing, you know, with flowers on a harbor. And they're they're passing around this metaphorical bomb like a hot potato in a circle, which is uh, some pretty unforgettable, vivid imagery there. I have not seen the video for that. I didn't know there was a video for that. Um yeah, I went I went back into the archives of YouTube and yeah, that's uh yeah, it's pretty nifty. Pretty nifty. Um, Worth taking a look at it. Yeah, I'm going to make myself enough to do that. That's cuz they, you know, I don't think when I was watching MTV when they used to play music videos in the 80s, like I don't think I saw a ton of Smith videos on MTV. Yeah, I don't think they you would see them on, you know, even 120 minutes. It was yeah, rare. I mean that would be if you were going to see them, that would be where they would be, I guess. But like, they, yeah. I don't think they got much, um, you know, versus other bands of the era for sure. Um, yeah, I'm mm-hmm. going to Google that for sure after we after we're done talking about. Um, but that's so. Ask what I love about that song is um, that's a really great. Um, my wife's family, um, she has a lot of family in Ireland, uh, and we go there every couple of years, and invariably after drinking at the pub or whatever, you know, it's very, you know, kind of cliche Irish experience. We get back to the, the house or whatever, the guitar gets, you know, produced and people, that's Ask is like one of the big drunken sing-along tunes because of that, the, the bomb, yeah. the bomb lyric is, it's, it's very fun to sing after a few pints. <laughs> that the bomb will bring us together. <laughs> yeah. The bomb, the bomb, the bomb. Yeah. And again, that's that, that Morrissey repetition, that kind of mantra. It's like the hang the DJ kind of thing. Totally. Yeah. And because uh, it's funny, because I think I'm going to misquote it or, or butcher it, but I think Elvis Costello um, is is known for for not being a huge fan of Morrissey's writing, like something to the effect that Morrissey's never finished a song. Because if you if you think about like Elvis Costello's songs are typically very like literary and lengthy, and you know they're it's I almost feel like listening to Elvis Costello is more like reading a novel or something. Um, whereas, whereas I get that. Where, but I, I think what he's missing is, and I like both of those styles, but I think what he's missing is that um, there is something that I think even Morrissey was ahead of the curve on, knowing that attention spans, you know, were going to kind of be a thing of the past at some point. Like, I think that it speaks more to the future of of, of like kind of pop music and and just the aesthetic of what, of, you know, music in general, like shorter songs. I mean, if you look at, you know, songs now, like, you know, a lot of songs are, are getting close to that, like, two and a half minute mark again. Yeah. Uh, at least more more so than, like, 10 years ago. And I think that, that that to discount, it's like there's also, like, that quote of, like, you know, if, if sorry, this letter's so long, if I had more time, it would have been shorter kind of thing. I think they're distilling your, your vision or, or, or the concept of whatever you're working on is to me harder than writing endlessly about it. So I, mm-hmm. that's where I kind of find a little bit of fault with that logic that he never finished a song. You know, it's like, I think he just knew that a song doesn't have to be, you know, for uniquely different verses that tell a story. Yeah. It, it's, 
it's interesting that you talk about attention spans because there's there's another lyric in here where he asks only twice. He says, "Nature is a language, can't you read?" That one that one just kind of struck me in just the sense that you know, I mean, yes, the song was you know written you know back in the mid '80s, but um, you can kind of apply that to today in a lot of social media landscapes where we're just constantly bombarded with stuff and, and information and to just kind of, you know, look up and, and see what's actually happening in your own universe. Yeah. Well, it's funny. It's like we're now, it's like, you know, it's, it's we're in a super weird position now because like we're actually stuck in our houses with, with the quarantine and stuff like that. Yeah. I kind of resist the word quarantine in our conversation, but now I've said it twice. Um, the, cause it's like, I, I definitely had rediscovered parts of my yard that I've forgotten about in the past couple of years. <laughs> Cause it's like, and my, my son got like poison ivy or something. I don't know. It's so weird. Like, like the day three of our quarantine, you know, when, you know, he's obviously stopped going to school. He just broke out into these like hives or whatever, you know, and we couldn't figure out what it was. And we realized that we were just playing in the yard, like way more than we ever had, you know, and historically. Yeah. So it was kind of an interesting takeaway, for sure. We we are talking with Jarrett Nicolay here on Cover to Cover with Matt Targa. We're talking about all things the Smiths, as well as uh, being quarantined. Um, <laughs> but but we're more or less talking about louder than bombs. And uh, the next track that we have in this large compilation is called Golden Lights, and uh, some interesting backing vocals that were uh, supplied by. Kirstie McCall, and um, she was a she was a huge singer from what I've you know read a little bit about her. Um, yeah, back in the '80s in particular, and uh, this is one of two tunes uh, that I think was written by guitarist Johnny Marr, if I'm reading the liner notes correctly. So yeah, it's, I I don't honestly know the the super details. I think they, they might have backed her, like they might have backed her, like the. the the band might have backed her on a live gig or something like that. I don't know if she was a friend of Morrissey's or how that, how this version of this song happened. But for me, yeah. was this, like, I, I don't, and I don't love this song. It's not like one of my, you know, if I was going to, like, I'm also a big fan of, like, you know, doing, like, the, if this was going to be a 10-song record, what, you know, what 10 songs would it be? Because I feel like, again, like the White Album, there there are some songs that I'm, I could take or leave. But I do think that that's part of the charm of, of sprawling kind of things like this, this record in the White Album, where you get sick of one song, but then like the song right after it, you're like, oh, okay, you hear, start hearing it enough, and there's, you find things in there that, that you didn't process the first time or the second time or even the, like the eighth time. So it's kind of this, this record is like a fun little, like you can listen to it as like it's in sections or, but it would be an amazing 10 song record. Like it would just be, you know, all, all killer, no filler as they say. But there, with, without songs like Golden Lights and like the next one, Oscillate Wildly, Wildly is just an instrumental jam, which I also really like as well because Morrissey's voice is so particular and it's like it is nice to have a little break from that. You know, even if you love it, it's so cool to hear just like the band do their thing. Um, and I would have even like separated Golden Lights and Oscillate Wildly to different places on the record just to give you two breaks of, mm-hmm. of a song each, you know, of, of just hearing the same singer, but I think they they were going with more like the, 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 the clumps of, you know, these two songs are both really weird, that they're Smith songs, so they're just, I guess they just put them together. 
It's so interesting. Yeah, I, I really enjoy Oscillate Wildly as well. It's 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 just a nice little passage. It it reminded me just a little bit rhythmically of um there's a song this I think it was a single that was released by Talk Talk called It's My Life. <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. And I, I really dig that song. It was later covered by No Doubt. And I thought No Doubt did a pretty decent job of covering it, to be honest. I don't I, I can imagine there's some haters, some some purists, but I mean yeah. <clears throat> they they didn't stray too far, but like they, it it got that song in, in a lot of people's ears that wouldn't have heard it otherwise, which I think is always a service to, you know, a good song that may have not seen its full potential as in, you know, like I know that again, like Talk Talk is probably a band band more than it's like a, you know, general population kind of band, but but uh, I definitely uh, love that song for sure. Yeah. Um, one little thing I just want to briefly mention, uh, and it's about Golden Lights, is I wonder if this singer is comparing himself in any way to uh, Alex Chilton and Big Star. Just this lyric of boy in a million, idol, a big star, I didn't tell you how great you were. I didn't grovel and scream and rip your brand new jacket at the seams. Now, I mean... Big Star and the Smiths have had wildly different experiences, um, but just but just the idea of you know is is it just you know a big star or is he actually calling out you know a group that could have been much bigger than than they were? Yeah, it could have, and and again that's like the vagueness that I would that I prefer in lyrics where it's like you know again like with REM or a band like that their lyrics were just completely like you know abstract like. Jackson yeah. Pollock in lyric form or something, but like, where whereas, like the Smiths, it was, it gave you a little bit more of direction, you know, to take it, but it was almost like a few options instead of like, who knows what this song is about or if it's about anything, you know, with with like REM or something like that. But and I love that stuff too, but I feel like as you know, as someone who wanted to start writing lyrics, the Smiths definitely helped me more um, figure out a way to write lyrics that weren't cliche but also could be like emotional or meaningful if that makes sense it makes sense yeah it makes total sense we're talking with Jarrett Nicolay here on cover to cover with Matt Tarka all about the Smiths uh 1987 compilation louder than bombs and uh talked quite extensively about um a whole series of tracks so far and we're um kind of on the back nine, as it were. <laughs> and the next song is called uh, These Things Take Time. Um, what, what say you about this? It's uh, This is definitely not one of the ones rocker. I don't, yeah. I don't I, do you, What do you have to say? Because this one is one, like, I can look at, like, when I hear the song titles, to me, I, this one, I have, I'm having a hard time even remembering what this one sounds like. Because this is the back nine, and either, yeah. you know, on a 24-song record, even that's my... <laughs> my fandom at this point. I think I like this one, but I don't remember how it sounds, to be honest. Do you, what, do you got any lyrics handy? Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm reading lyrics right now. I mean, it's um, it, it's ex, it's extremely nostalgic. I mean, you know, he's singing about alcoholic afternoons when we sat in your rooms that meant more to me than any living thing on earth. So this, to me, this song seems, um, it seems, I would put this in the filler category of, of, you know, it's superficially, it sounds cool. It's got some cool, it's like bouncy, but it's like, it's to me, this wasn't a song for me that ever, that I ever put under any microscope. Like it was just kind of on in the background and it sounded, it would be like, 
if it came on the radio, I wouldn't turn the station, but I wouldn't turn it up. You would hope that, that maybe this was a, a block of the Smiths. Yeah, or that if they're playing this yeah. song, that the DJ's got some, you know, he's not worth hanging. To, yeah. yeah. <laughs> to quote Marcy. But, uh, yeah, you know, it's like it's it's completely fine, but I think there's a reason it's track 16 on a 24-song record. After after this tune, we have a, a song called Rubber Ring, and it's there's kind of this, like, sort of prance-like guitar and, you know, kind of staccato-style lyrics. It's, um, it's almost like spaghetti western or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but again, it's, I think that's, it's an instrumental, so, um, I believe, right? There's a, there's a handful of lyrics here. Um, kind of goes like this, the passing of time and all of its crime oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, is making me yeah. sad again. Yeah. yeah Just don't forget the songs that made you cry and the songs that saved your life. Yes, you're older now and you're a clever swine, but they were only the ones who ever stood by you. So it's a it's a weird sort of almost coming of age tale. <laughs> yep, but much more sinister than that. I think tracks sixteen and seventeen are my like low like that's where I would like when listening from the beginning that's where I would be like done and like and then I would probably pick it back up at like eighteen to the end or something. Uh huh. Are you talking about two? back back to the old house or hand and glove? Yeah, so back to this old house or back to the old house. I always thought it was back to this old house. So back to the old house. Um, um, it's again, it's more like that acoustic kind of like, um, you know, it's 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 um, I don't know. It's just very like calming or something. It's kind of a waltz in some respect. Yeah. Um, is it in three four? It might be. Um, yeah, it is. You're right. I think about that for a second. Um, but yeah, I love that. Um, just that kind of. I think and I don't know, I think it's a twelve string, but it's just his guitar, like the acoustic guitar tone is so pristine and it just sounds so good and it's just it's you know, it's definitely a great example of what I love about Johnny Marr's acoustic playing. And yeah, it's just it's it's like a very kind of just calming but again, you know, you feel like you're in England, but maybe it's now it's like summertime and it's not raining. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking like sunset. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So th- this is a nice segue from Back to the Old House. We have uh, Hand and Glove, which um, vocals, and Morrissey's vocals seem to be recorded just a few decibels below the rhythm section here. And uh, I don't know, for some reason, melodically, it kind of reminds me a little bit of um, anything that you might hear on R.E.M.'s Chronic Town. Yeah. Well, I think Hand and Glove was their first single. Was um, it really? Okay. I, th- I think so. Um, it. Um, definitely fact check that if you want, but or or we can just go with the you know fake news. I'll, I'll just say it was their first single. Um, it was re- it was released apparently in May of '83 on Rough Trade. So yeah, I mean that that definitely puts it in. I mean maybe there was a song, maybe you know it could have been their first album. The Smiths, The Smiths might have come out before that, but I think it might have been their first single, and it might have been on that album because yeah. yeah. there there were some singles that weren't on albums, so it's it's hard to and again. That's what I like about them, but it also makes it kind of harder to, you know, yeah, to talk pin, about. Pin articles. down, yeah. Right, which I, I, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of that. Cause sometimes, like, when you know too much, it's like knowing what's in the sausage kind of thing. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's just sometimes better to process it as just this kind of, you know, 20%. I have no idea where this is coming from kind of vibe. But, um, but yeah, Hand and Glove was – and there was a harmonica, kind of a, a riff in that as well, which kind of – but I, I get your Chronic Town reference for sure. Yeah, I was thinking of like carnival of sorts for some yeah. reason when I. It has that menacing quality. It's got like yeah. a it's 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 upbeat, but it's like you know it's it, it's 
It isn't trying to make you – it isn't relaxing. And it is weird that, that that is a weird song to have on this compilation. I don't know why. It makes me think that it wasn't on an album, but maybe – I don't know. So, yeah, so that makes sense. I guess that, that would be why it would be on this. They, they wanted, you know, a way for – probably a way for fans to have it on something that, you know, instead of having to buy a 45 from yeah. four years previously – yeah, it peaked at number three on the UK indie chart, and uh, but it didn't make it onto the uh, the singles chart of top seventy five cuts. So interesting. interesting. Yeah. Well, and it's it's funny because like Chronic Town would have come out in what eighty two. Yes. Yeah. So like I mean, there I think there was definitely a conversation, not like with the words necessarily, but like a, a guitar, like a a Rickenbacker ping pong match between Peter Buck and Johnny Marr for sure. Like there was you know. They they were similar style guitar players in in the uh, in the early versions of the of both their bands, and then they both went different kind of different ways with it. I think Mara got a little more like um, orchestral with his parts, and 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 Peter Buck kind of got more like rock guitar player, you know, feedback and and you know, but keeping the arpeggiation kind of thing in there. But but uh, that's where I, to me, I, as a younger person, Peter Buck's trajectory. Um, I was more attracted to that because it was stuff that as a guitar player I could hear and teach myself by ear because it was kind of more obvious and more, you know, less mm-hmm. muddled in the mix. It was kind of more just like what it sounded like when he played it, whereas Johnny Marr's stuff is just this kind of like the synergy of his guitar parts equals this thing that you can't necessarily pick out each individual part anymore, which is, right. as a, as an older person, to me is, is is a, it's more nuanced and, and why I can still listen to those records more than, say, like, an, you know, an R.E.M. record at this point. Talking with Jarrett Nicolay here on Cover to Cover with Matt Tarka. After Hand in Glove, we have a tune called Stretch Out and Wait. Um, another another tune that has a bit of a waltz quality as well. And, yep. Uh, it's interesting, like, just the dynamics of the music here. Just for some reason, I had in my mind that it feels like a tug of war between Morrissey's vocals and the rest of the band, kind of a push me, pull you. Sure. Or... Um, yeah, and what's interesting is that I think this, I think Stretch Out and Wave was a, a single, was a, was a B-side, I think. Um, I think it was with Shakespeare's sister. Yeah. Um, which, those two songs could not be more different. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like um, stretch out and wait was almost like a kind of you know the Shakespeare sister so it's got that kind of hand in glove it's in that family of like kind of like agitated upbeat you know um, you know and, and there is like a definite um, a punk aesthetic in, in the Smiths that we haven't touched on where not like literally like the Ramones or something but like just this irreverence um, lyrically. And, and like, you know, with the mantra kind of like, you know, the hang the DJ, hang the DJ, like the repetition stuff, but also just in like, just the underlying kind of like um, aggression. Um, it isn't, it isn't obvious and it isn't, um, you know, the typical kind of like throw on the distortion, but there is this menacing quality to some of their songs that I think is, is definitely distilled from something in the punk, you know, aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And then, so Stretch Out and Wait, I think it's like the kind of like, okay, you, you got through your sister, so now you can chill out and hear something pretty. Right. After Stretch Out and Wait, we have a tune called Please, Please, Please Let Me Get What I Want. And this is um, this is kind of a strange dichotomy here. I mean, it's, you know, it's almost, the cold open is almost like a, 
like a bright, cheerful guitar as opposed to that menacing, you know, quality that you were speaking about with stretch out and wait. Um, and I believe this is the first track on this compilation where we hear some really tasteful mandolin parts from Johnny Marr. Yeah. I mean, that it's like just dripping with reverb and like, it's so over the top. And like, to me, it's like, it's almost like schmaltzy, you know, or, but yeah. for yeah. whatever reason, like, because, you know, because of their other stuff, it gets this, like, it gets a vibe for some reason. Like, if, if a band came out with that as their first song, I'd be like, these guys are, it's kind of lame, you know? Like, it's just a little bit, like, it's, it seems, like, over the top and, and almost, like, um, not musical theater, but, like, it's it's, it's very dramatic sounding, um, but I love it. I think it's it's great, and, and the, I've often, in, in, like, production stuff, I have, like, there, I will, I will use that mandolin sound as, like, a, as something in my head that I, I try to emulate because like, the, the sound of that, the kind of like, uh, I guess, butterfly kind of fast picking mandolin with all that reverb, it just turns into almost like a synth pad. You know, it just sounds huh. like this like wash of like high frequency, like prettiness that, that it, you know, nothing else can do that the way that does that. And and, and actually the fun fact for this song is um, it was in Ferris Bueller's Day Off uh, when they're, when they're, have you seen that movie? I have, yeah. When they're in the museum, this song, an instrumental version of this song is playing underneath that scene. Oh my gosh, I had no idea. That's I'm going to have to now go back and watch Ferris Bueller. And it's funny because I think I had heard that, not yeah. knowing who it was, and then so when I heard this song on this record, I was like, oh, I know this song, but, but I hadn't, I didn't know there were lyrics, you know, and then it all kind of like connected. Because I didn't have like the soundtrack to Ferris Bueller, I just had seen the movie, but, but it was interesting to hear it instrumental first and then that's, hear it with yeah, that's so cool. This was um, this track was released as a B-side of uh, William that was really nothing uh, back in 1984. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna have to go back and watch that movie now. That's and but to to be yeah. like, I think that's also why they consider themselves a singles band because like that's an amazing side A and side B. Like William, it was really nothing, and it, and like when when please please let me get what I want is the B-side. Like that's impressive to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. After Please, 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 Let Me Get What I Want, we have that this night has opened my eyes. And this is kind of back to some sort of that, you know, that syncopated rhythm section, some jazz vibes. Yeah. Uh, this is my favorite song on the whole record. This is yeah. Like, I, I love yeah. this song. It feels like it, it, it would be perfect for an afternoon. Just let the light pour it through your shades and just be reflective and sit on the couch and just and just chill. Yeah, you know, and I think he's singing about a movie. I think there's some movie that he, he had seen, and he literally is just, like, kind of, like, taking, a, like, a, a thread of of lyrics, you know, vaguely from the plot of, of a movie, and I wish I knew the, the movie. Um, hmm. Probably some 60s movie or, you know, something. But um, it So, like, on Smith's album covers, for, for, for most of them, there's, like, old Hollywood pictures, or, you know, it, it, it's never, like, well, it's not never, but it's usually not a picture of the band on the album cover. Um, I think until, maybe, I don't know what record has, I don't think there's ever an album cover of the Smiths that has them on the cover. It's always like some like, you know, old actors, just some cool, and Morrissey always did the art direction for the covers. And this song to me sounded like what the covers looked like. Hmm. Like it was like the characters in it were, were you know, dead and old, you know, it happened a long time ago. And then the performance of the song, I think it's a John Peel session, 
And to, to explain John Peel, he was just a BBC DJ, I think, right? He was, yeah. He was. And he would have bands come on. and It was kind of like, you know, um, you know, like how they would have bands on, you know, Austin City Limits or something like that. But he would record them yeah. on a show. And then, but for some reason, the Smiths, like, released some of these as their actual, you know, the versions of the song. And, and I just think the recording, like, I don't think there's any overdubs. I think it's just them playing it. And it's, like, they just nailed it. And, like, the rhythm section, like you mentioned, the like the drum hits and the bass lines and, like, just everything is, it couldn't be more uh, minimal and, and effective and just super, like, there's no fat on it. Like, nothing that shouldn't be there. There's nothing, like, that isn't exactly with, like, the aesthetic of the whole thing. Like, the bass part, the drums, the guitar, the vocals. It's, like, it's, like, a perfect little moment in time of, of, of music to me. You know, in today's world, I, I would imagine somebody like, uh, it, it could be fair to say that like a Kevin Cole from KEXP out in Seattle that put yep. together various live sessions would be like today's version of John Peel. Sure. Yeah, that's a perfect reference. Yep. Um, after this night has opened my eyes, uh, we have, you know, we close out this compilation with two tracks, Unlovable, which is a B-side of uh, a tune called Big Mouth Strikes Again, and then lastly a song called Asleep, which is a B-side of The Boy with a Thorn in His Side, and the latter is just is absolutely gut-wrenching, and I'll shut my mouth and let you, you know, share your thoughts about either one of these tracks. Yeah, um, so it, this actually is making me realize that so Asleep is the B-side of the boy with the thorn in his side is what you just said, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so these, so this did come out after um, the Queen is Dead, because this, because Big Mouth and the boy with the thorn in his side are both singles from the Queen is Dead. So these songs were, so these, I guess, I don't know if these recordings were contemporary with those, but like, it means that this record definitely just came out after, you know, that that record. Um, but I think it came out before Strange Ways, which was their last record. Anyway, um, to me, Asleep is just like, you could not have a better last song on a record. Like, yeah. it's just like the, the, you know, it's, again, like the White Album, it's like the Good Night, you know, mm-hmm. on that, on this record. And it's just so, I think it's Morrissey playing piano, and it's a piano part that when I figured out how to play it myself, I was, I couldn't have been, like, because this is, you know, before the internet and all that stuff, and I, I'd gotten pretty good as a teenager picking out guitar parts, but piano was harder because it just wasn't, as was like, you couldn't hear the chord shapes like you could on a guitar, um, so to me, when I figured out how to play this on piano, or at least my version of it, that, that it, it, you know, gets like 80% there, but enough to where I could play it and be like, I think I'm playing this song, and, and it was a huge, huge, uh, point of pride for me and it's a it's a song i like if i sit down at a piano there's like there's a good chance i'm going to play it you know just if i'm at a piano for more than five minutes but just to kind of hear it you know in real time it's just a beautiful piano part and the lyrics are just ridiculous yeah sing me to sleep sing me to sleep and then leave me alone don't try to wake me up in the morning because i will be gone don't feel bad for me i want you to know deep in the cell of my heart I will feel so glad to go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's heartbreaking. So melodramatic too. You know, it's like, again, it's like the fact that 
I think he's earned the right to have lyrics like that. Like, again, if it was the first song I heard from them, it wouldn't mean as much knowing that, you know, that, that they can do not that as well. It, it almost seems like he's, you know, lyrically closing the chapter on the band with this song. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I mean, it's, there's definitely, you could, you know, if you were sitting on a, in a therapist's office, you, you could argue that for sure. Yeah. Talking with Jarrett Nicolay here on Cover to Cover with Matt Tarka, all about the Smiths um, compilation from 1987 titled Louder Than Bombs. And uh, Jarrett, I, you know, I like to talk about cover art, lastly. And uh, as you know, we live in this crazy universe and, and more so than ever these days. Um, but with any sort of live recordings that get released, um, there's always some sort of supporting artwork to it. And uh, when you look at this album cover, you alluded to a couple of things where, um, you know, pictures of the band are um, usually not present on the front cover. Um, but, you know, based on what we are looking at with this image, what kinds of um, what kinds of thoughts or emotions are conjured up in your head when you take a look at this? I mean, to me, it's just like I was saying, you know, about um, um, just how I feel like track the – uh, this night has opened my eyes. This to me it sounds like the cover art looks, and to me it's just when I look at the cover, uh, it just looks so English, you know, and it just it, it's just so un-American looking. Like you would never confuse it with an American band's album cover. I mean, you would now because we kind of globalized and you know we kind of co-opted aesthetics. But like in the '80s, like this clearly was like, and just their name, you know, the Smiths and the font on on the cover. It's just so. Um, it's so un-rock and roll, you know, as, yeah. as what rock and roll was up to that point, you know, largely. And, you know, and then just the louder than bombs, just like the, the bravado that that name suggests. It's like, it's a, it's a gauntlet, you know, to, yeah. to, to say that, you know, it, it's a weird juxtaposition to have such an austere kind of cover, but with an album that's kind of almost ridiculous, you know, ridiculously titled. Um, and then the fact that she, you know, the, the woman on the front cover clearly just doesn't, she's over it and, you know, smoking and it's, you yeah. know, it's just, just cool. It's like, it definitely has a punk rock vibe. Apparently it's, uh, her name is Shayla Delaney. I didn't realize this until just now. She was an English dramatist and screenwriter. Oh, okay. Yeah. She wrote a book in 1958 called A Taste of Honey, which, um, has gotten some, you know, recognition by Michael Patterson as, uh, in his words, is probably the most performed play by a post-war British woman playwright. Huh. Interesting. Interesting. I wonder if it's the, is that where the song Taste of Honey comes from? Like, or is that, are they both just mutually I, I, exclusive? I, cause I really don't know. Yeah. The, the Beatles used to cover a song called A Taste of Honey, and I'm not, I think, I think it came from a musical, uh, huh. but I'm not sure. Again, it's... It's off my just off my radar enough to not know the the details, but that's interesting though for sure. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, all their records have like if you go through all their discography, you know, album covers, there it's all similar stuff to this. Um, just you know, kind of historical, lesser known historical figures, which I think is great because it's like it conveys. I think it's album covers. It's hard because like you're you're in a way, and especially back then, it was a way to kind of it was like a warning shot to what you were going to be hearing and for better or for worse it is going to affect how you hear the songs because you do see it before you hear it unless you've heard you know a song on the radio or something like that but this record was 100 percent 
I didn't know any of the songs when I bought it. I just knew I liked that other, I liked the Queen is Dead tape in my art class. So when I saw this, you know, again, my cheapness made me buy this one because it had 24 songs, but the cover definitely um, intrigued me for sure. And then, you know, hearing, you know, it it probably does help when you, when your album has a cover that, that synergizes with it and makes it, like, you know, kind of a cohesive experience for sure. Jarrett Nicolay, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you today about the Smiths Louder Than Bombs. Thank you so much again for stopping by the program and sharing a record that has affected you in, in such a profound way. So thanks so much. My pleasure, man. I really appreciate you having me on. All right. Thanks so much to Jarrett Nicolay for taking some time to stop by the program today. For all of you listeners out there, Thank you very much, and please remember to hit that subscribe button on that device in which you listen to your favorite podcast, whether it's Stitcher, Google Play, Apple, or maybe even tune in. Take a moment to tell a friend or your family about our show. Let us know how much you like the show by giving us a good rating. That'll certainly help us appear higher in search results. And as always, feel free to drop us a line at hello at covertocoverconversations.com. Intro and outro music of our podcast just happens to be produced by our guest, Jarrett Nicolay at Mixtape Studios in Northern Virginia. We hope you discovered some new music, perhaps rekindled your love for an old forgotten song, and shared a good moment with us as we continue to sonically explore world from cover to cover. <laughs>